So now I'm going to have to feel bad when I tear this movie apart when you say, like, this shaped me as a person. Jesus. <laughs> I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. Put a smile on that face. You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be. I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this Australian takeover just continues. Uh, this week, we are taking Woo! a look at Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the Search for Meaning. Uh, and to do that, I kind of I felt trapped. I felt like if I was going to do this movie, I had to bring in Andrew because he just can't stop talking about how great this movie is. It's the best feel. He actually mentioned it on our episode on ET that this was his uh, that this was his favorite Spielberg movie and Spielberg's best. So welcome once again, Andrew, to Pop Culture Case Study. Thank you very much. Uh, or as you may know, it is AB Film Review uh, Case Study. Um, so yes. <laughs> Uh, so yes, thank you very much for having me back on on to uh, discuss yeah my uh, fourth favorite film of all time. Um, so it's really really pleasing that you've got me here. Uh, yeah, so I I do a show called AB Film Review um, with my wife, Film Review podcast and also the last new wave as well which is an australian film review podcast i know you didn't ask me about what my shows were but you knew i was going to actually say these things (laughs) (laughs) absolutely all right uh so before i talk about uh the psychology do you have a couple movie recommendations for us i do actually um so one of the films which i watched a lot when i was growing up mostly because it terrified me a lot uh, and I'd usually watch it alongside Close Encounters of the Third Kind is Communion uh, with Christopher Walken in it. Um, and it's it was part of the, the whole era with like Fire in the Sky and stuff like that, which was mm-hmm. like the, the really terrifying uh, prospect that you're all going to get abducted, uh, whereas Close Encounters is a nice, pleasing look at abductions. Um, <laughs> and, then the, <laughs> and then the other film as well is Noah, which I think that, you know, sure, it's a religious film, but it's about a man who is compelled by uh, something that he can't see and and can't communicate with to make something or to do something. And yeah, I think that that works thematically very well with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Nice. So they're my tricks. Yeah, yeah, actually, I haven't seen either one of those. Noah's been on my list to see forever. I love Aronofsky and it looks fucking insane uh so i'm interested to see it i'm sure it's gonna be one of those movies where i was like okay i saw that once i don't need to watch that again but uh but we'll see so uh so thank you for those recommendations uh we will we'll take a break here and then i will talk about uh the search for meaning and then we'll bring you back to talk about close encounters this is chris maynard i'm host of the following films podcast Every week I discuss a current release with one of the creative forces behind the film. Whether it's Giles Nutkins talking hell or high water, Leah Thompson discussing her work on Trouble with the Truth, or Jeremy Sandy chatting about his work on Deepwater Horizon. You can find our episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, or any place you find podcasts. Even better yet, you can go to followingfilms.com, check out our latest episode, get some film news, reviews, and all sorts of goodness. Uh, that was my son Jacob. He says hello, and he really wants you to check out the show. 
Okay, so it's time for the psychological section. So we're talking about the search for meaning. Um, and in psychological terms, we just call this meaning making. So it's the process of how people understand and make sense of events in their life, their relationships, and everything that's going on within themselves. This term is used widely in a lot of different approaches to counseling psychology and psychotherapy, especially during times of bereavement in which people want to attribute a sort of meaning to an experience death or loss because it feels empty otherwise. It feels like there is no point if there's not a reason for that person to be gone. The term is also used in educational psychology. Now, there's there's one book that says through meaning making, people are quote, retaining, reaffirming, revising, and replacing elements of their orienting system to develop a more nuanced, complex, and useful system. So the idea is we're stuck in this system, right? And if we can make meaning of it, then we have a better, more efficient system that we're working with. So the history of this uh, pretty much starts with Viktor Frankl. Uh, and if you've never if you've never read uh, *Man's Search for Meaning* by Viktor Frankl, I highly recommend it. At least the first half. The second half is um, about his therapy, but the first half is about his uh, survival of the Holocaust. So he's a psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor, and the book was published in 1946. Uh, and the primary motivation for this book was motivating people to discover a meaning in life. He stated that meaning can be discovered in any circumstances, even the worst experiences of loss and tragedy which, of course, he experienced. He stated that people could discover meaning through doing a deed, experiencing a value, and experiencing suffering. He didn't use the term meaning-making per se, um, but th that emphasis definitely influenced later psychologists and researchers. Now, Neil Postman and Charles Weingartner, um, who were educational critics and promoters of education, they published a chapter called Meaning Making in a 1969 book called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. So it, it proposed this constructivist philosophy of education um, and described why they preferred the, the term meaning making to any other metaphor for teaching and learning. So this is what they said. Perhaps you'll understand why we prefer the metaphor meaning-making to most of the metaphors of the mind that are operative in schools. It is, to begin with, less static than the others. It stresses a process view of minding, including the fact that minding is undergoing constant change. Meaning-making also forces us to focus on the individuality and the uniqueness of the meaning-maker or the student. Uh, so that's that's where they got the term meaning making. So by the end of the 1970s, the term meaning making was being used all over the place. Developmental psychologist Robert Keegan used the term as a key concept in several widely cited texts on counseling and human development in the 70s and early 80s. And he wrote, human being is meaning making for the human what evolving amounts to is the evolving of systems of meaning. The business of organisms is to organize. So the term and the term meaning making has also been used by psychologists uh, influenced by a very famous psychologist, George Kelly, his personal construct theory. So there was a review of the meaning making literature published in 2010 by Crystal Park. And they noted that there was a rich body of theory on meaning making, but not a lot of empir empirical research. But of course, there are a few areas where there has been research, one of them, as I mentioned, with bereavement. So with the experience of a death of a person close to you, people often have to create new meaning for this loss. A lot of interventions that provoke meaning making can be beneficial to grievers, as some interventions have actually been found to improve both mental and physical health. 
But according to some researchers, quote, for certain individuals from challenging backgrounds, efforts after meaning might not be psychologically healthy when those efforts are more similar to rumination than to resolution of the problems. And this is always the issue with bereavement is like how much is resolution and how much is rumination. And rumination is just this consistent thought where you just won't let it go. Some researchers report that meaning making can help people feel less distressed and allows people to become more resilient in the face of future losses. On the other side, failing to attribute meaning to death leads to more long-term distress for some people. So there's lots of strategies people can utilize for meaning making. Many of them are summarized in a book called Techniques of Grief Therapy. One study developed a meaning of loss codebook, which clusters common meaning making strategies into 30 categories. Amongst these strategies, the most commonly used categories include personal growth, familial bonds, spirituality, negative affect, valuing life, impermanence, compassion, and release from suffering. So I mentioned family bonds. That's another area they've looked at. Uh, individuals using existing family bonds for meaning making have a change in outlook or behavior towards family members. So with this strategy, you can create a meaning of loss through your interactions with other family members and spend more time with them. So like the loss of someone close to you leads to you spending more time with other people that are close to you. Also, when family members are able to openly express their attitudes and beliefs, it can lead to a better well-being and less disagreement within the family. Meaning-making with a family also increases marital satisfaction by reducing overall family tension, especially if the deceased was another family member. So, of course, one of the biggest areas they've looked at for meaning-making is, uh, <clears throat> is through spirituality and religiosity. Uh, religiosity sounds like a made-up word, uh, and it probably is, but it's probably made up by psychologists, just how religious you are. So meaning-making through these two areas is significant because it, it has helped people cope with their losses, as well as develop their own spiritual beliefs. Spirituality helps grievers think about this kind of transcendental reality and share their worldview world and feel a sense of belonging to a community that has those same shared beliefs. When individuals with a divinity worldview can make meaning through spirituality, they, they perceive the divine or their God to be involved in a major stressful life event, and they use that belief in a divine to develop a meaning for the loss. And you'll, you'll hear this a lot, uh, and if you're not religious, it can be hard to hear. And actually, if you are religious, it can still be hard to hear. The whole, it's part of God's plan. This is why something bad happened to you. But there are three main ways in which a theistic person can create meaning through religion. So there's benevolent religious reappraisals, punishing God reappraisals, and reappraisals of God's power. So the benevolent one is, uh, is part of God's plan. The punishing God reappraisals cast God in a dark light and they blame God for the loss or feel punished by their God. The reappraisals of power questions God's ability to intervene on the situation. But all of these will contribute to how they create a sense of meaning for their loss. And another way to make meaning is through philanthropy. So grievers can make meaning of death through philanthropic services like charities, foundations, and organizations. Uh, this can create financial support, social support, emotional support, and even help create positive results from the negative experience of death. For example, there's a story of one couple that lost a child, and they described how they developed Nora's Project. 
Um, their daughter with a disability died, and in order to help provide wheelchairs for children with disabilities around the world, they created Nora's Project. The mother said, with Nora's Project, I am also healing. I am able to turn something that was horrific, the way she died, into something that will do good in the world. So like this mother, it's really common for people to want to create or do something positive for others in the face of great tragedy. Uh, philanthropy helps people make meaning by continuously honoring a life while simultaneously helping others who are going through a similar experience. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about is logotherapy. That is the therapy I brought up when talking about Viktor Frankl, which is where all this meaning-making began. So, so logotherapy is considered, quote, the third Viennese school of psychotherapy along with Freud's psychoanalysis and Adler's individual psychology. It's based on existential analysis, which focuses on Kierkegaard's will to meaning as opposed to like a Nietzschean doctrine of will to power or a Freud doctrine of will to pleasure. So rather than power or pleasure, it's founded upon the belief that it is the striving to find meaning in your life that is the primary motivating and driving force in humans. It's a very positive view of human beings. So here are the basic principles. It was created with the Greek word logos, which means wisdom. Uh, and his concept is based on the premise that you know, we're motivating, uh, motivating ourselves to find meaning to move forward. So the following list of tenets represents the basic principles. So life has meaning under all circumstances, even the most miserable ones. Two, our main motivation for living is our will to find meaning in life. And three, we have freedom to find meaning in what we do and what we experience, at least in the stand we take when faced with a situation of unchangeable suffering. So the human spirit is referred to in many of the assumptions in logotherapy, but the use of the term spirit is not necessarily spiritual or religious. In Frankel's view, the spirit of is the will of the human being. So the emphasis is on is on the search for meaning, which is not about the search for God or a supernatural being. It can be, but it definitely doesn't have to be. He also noted the barriers to him, humanity's quest for meaning in life. He warns against affluence, hedonism, and materialism in the search for meaning because that will get in your way. So purpose in life or meaning in life constructs will appear in his logotherapy writings. And he observed that it may be psychologically damaging when a person's search for meaning is blocked. A positive life purpose and meaning is associated with strong religious beliefs, membership in groups, dedication to a cause, life values, and clear goals. Adult development and maturity theories will include the purpose in life concept. I think we actually uh, talked a little bit about that when we talked about Erickson's stages on an earlier episode. So actually, his ideas have been operationalized into a test called the Krumbaugh and Mahalik's Purpose in Life, or PIL test, and it, and it measures an individual's meaning and purpose in life. So with the test, they found that meaning in life mediated the relationships between religiosity and well-being, uncontrollable stress and substance use, and depression and self-derogation. They found that the Seeking of Noetic Goals test, also called the SONG, is a complementary measure of the PIL. So the PIL will measure the presence of meaning, and the SONG measures orientation towards meaning. So if someone has a low score in the PIL but a high score in the SONG, there is a better outcome in the application of logotherapy. All right, so as far as views and treatment, so uh, let's start with anxiety. So 
By recognizing the purpose of our circumstances, a person can actually master anxiety. Anecdotes about the use of logotherapy uh, were given by New York Times writer Tim Sanders, who explained how he uses its concept to relieve the stress of fellow airline travelers by asking them the purpose of their journey. When he does this, he has found that no matter how miserable they are, their demeanor changes and they remain, remain happy throughout the flight. Of course, this takes into account that sometimes we take plane flights that we're not happy to take. So if you're going on vacation, sure, I can see this working. But if you're going for a funeral or or you're uh, going to visit relatives you don't want to see, that might not work. Uh, in treatment of neurosis, uh, Frankel cited two neurotic pathogens, hyperintention, which is a forced intention toward an end that makes the end unattainable, and hyperreflection, which is an excessive attention to the self, which stifles the attempts to avoid the neuroses uh, to which one thinks oneself predisposed. So in order to kind of relieve these anxieties and treat the re- the resulting neuroses, logotherapy offers what's called paradoxical intention, uh, where they actually tell the patient to, the, to do the opposite of their hyper-intended goal. Um, so a person then who fears not getting a good night's sleep may try too hard, that is hyper-intend, to fall asleep, and that would hinder their ability to do so. I think we've all been there where you're like, I really need to go to sleep, and then you just can't because you're so focused on it. A logotherapist would tell them, okay, um, go to bed, but intentionally try not to fall asleep. Try to stay awake. This relieves the kind of anxiety which kept the person awake in the first place and allows them to fall asleep in a short amount of time. Now, as far as depression, Frankel believes that depression occurred at the psychological, physiological, and spiritual level. So at the psychological level, feelings of inadequacy stem from undertaking tasks that are beyond our abilities. At the physiological level, he recognized a vital low, which he defined as a diminishment of physical energy. And finally, he believed at the spiritual level, the depressed man faces, or woman, uh, faces tension between who he actually is in relation to what he should be. Uh, He referred to this as the gaping abyss. Um, Other therapists have come along and called this the tyranny of the shoulds. So he suggested if goals seem unreachable, an individual will lose their sense of future and thus meaning resulting in depression. So logotherapy aims to change the patient's attitude towards their disease as well as towards their life as a task. Okay, the last one I want to go over is terminally ill patients. So in 1977, uh, Terry Zuhicki and John Watkins conducted a study looking at the effectiveness of logotherapy in treating terminally ill patients. The study used 20 male um, VA volunteers who were randomly assigned to one of two possible treatments. One, a group that received eight to 45-minute sessions over a two-week period, and two, a group used as control that received delayed treatment. Each group was tested on five scale. Each group was tested on five scales, the MMPIK scale, the MMPIL scale, death anxiety scale, brief psychiatric rating scale, and the purpose of life test, which we mentioned earlier. The results showed an overall significant difference between the control and treatment groups. Between the control and treatment groups. So that significant difference was that the terminally ill patients who had logotherapy were much better off as far as uh, the purpose and life scale than those who were coping with death without logotherapy. Okay, as far as like where we are now, so since the 1990s, logotherapy has evolved into meaning therapy. They've attempted to translate logotherapy into psychological mechanisms in order to make it more relevant to the wider psychology community. Because I think once you start talking about 
meaning making and you start talking about spirituality a lot of the the psychological a lot of the psychological community just kind of tunes out and goes oh, I'm not interested in that so this is what they've tried to do so this extension not only integrates meaning therapy with cognitive behavioral therapy and positive psychotherapy but connects meaning therapy with the positive psychology research on meaning Another new development is the application of logotherapy to palliative care. These recent developments introduce, uh, have introduced Frankel's logotherapy to this new generation, and hopefully it's going to extend its impact into new areas of research. All right, so that's it for the psychological section. Uh, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to come back and talk about close encounters of the third kind and the search for meaning. Watched the movie, check. Popped the popcorn, check. Sealed off all the doors and windows so that no one knows I'm home, check and double check. I'm ready to listen to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Oh, hello. I <laughs> didn't realize you were here. Hey, it's uh, Dwight, your best friend from the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, what's that you say? What's the Broken Brain Podcast? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Broken Brain is your weekly dose of mental health. It's a podcast hosted by me, a professional therapist, where we talk about the latest and most exciting things that we can find and learn about in the world of mental health treatment. We talk about anxiety, depression, uh, neurological underpinnings of the brain, addiction. We talk a lot about trauma recovery and uh, just all, all kinds of things that you'd expect from a show uh, hosted by and guested on by professional therapists and other medical mental health professionals. You may even be lucky enough to tune in to an episode starring your very own David Hart from this very program. Speaking of which, Dave is about to tell us all about how to feel about this new or possibly old breaking blockbuster classic movie that he's about to say now. Take it away, Dave. All right, so we're back to talk about the movie. It's time to talk about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Uh, so... Uh, I've been tormenting Andrew, I think, for more than a week now since I've seen this movie uh, because I half-jokingly keep telling him that it's terrible and it's yeah. minor Spielberg. And I've, I think, gotten him to the point that he doesn't know what's true really anymore. So, uh, so let's start with you. What is your history with this movie? And I'll tune back in in 25 minutes when you're done talking about yeah. your history with Close Encounters. Uh, so, so once again, thanks for tuning in to part one of this uh, ten-part series on Close Encounters oh, of the Third Kind. So much editing. <laughs> this, uh, I grew up watching this film, uh, you know, and if, for those who listened to the E.T. episode, uh, you'll know that I was frightened of E.T. quite a bit. Um, and in that regard, oddly, I turned to Close Encounters of the Third Kind as being a film that I about aliens that I really enjoyed and really appreciate, even though for some, you know, for, for certain parts of it, it does have more scary moments than E.T. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, this is, you know, when people talk about transformative films and stuff like that and films that really had a major impact on people's lives, Close Encounters of the Third Kind for me is that film. It really shaped who I am as a person in a way. Um it shaped my understanding of the world. It shaped uh, my beliefs in a certain regard. Um, and I think that, you know, I will, will certainly go on to more with, uh, you know, the directing and the acting and stuff like that. But this really is a film. Yeah, it's a, it's a film that shaped me as a person, uh, you know, as much as take that for what it is. But it's a it's a powerful film that has lasted for 30 years of, of brilliance. So, yeah. It's great. All right. So I'm now a, so now I'm going to have to feel bad when I tear this movie apart when you say, like, this shaped <laughs> me as a person. Jesus. No pressure. Um, so for me, I I remember, like, I don't I honestly don't remember the first time I watched it. I watched it when I was young. 
And for me, it's one of those Spielberg movies that is it's more impressive than it is enjoyable to me. Um, mm-hmm. I remember really liking it and I remember owning it on a couple different uh, <laughs> different ways. Like I think I had a VHS copy of it and I had a DVD copy of it. And of course, when I went to look for it to watch this time, I didn't have either one. Uh, so I had to find another way to watch it. Uh, but it's one of those movies that I kept buying, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily ever be in the mood to watch it. Like it, it's one of those things that I have to like really sit down and be like, okay, it's time to watch Close Encounters. Where if you got a movie like Jurassic Park or a movie like E.T., I feel like I can put that in pretty easily at kind of any time in any mood and enjoy it. So this movie, like it's, mm. it's a little bit more work. It's a little bit, it's a heftier piece of work. Yeah. Well, you don't get to because this is my show and it is. So that's, that's it. Um, so it's it's one of those movies that I'm rarely in the mood to watch but still feel like it's worth owning. So I think it is a very good movie. It's just not a movie that to me is easy to watch. See, that you can't argue with because it's to me. Uh, but I do think – so don't worry. I'm not going to tell you it's as bad as War of the Worlds. I'm not going to tell you it's a bad movie at all. It's not. It's it's a very good movie with some very good performances that we will get into for sure. I'm not so thick-skinned that, it, you know, I, I can't take the criticism for this film. It's not like, you know, when you – thankfully, you guys did a, a superb episode on Vertigo. And, you know, if you had turned around and said – Which you paid for. This. So you know, I paid for that. For, I'm glad you, you know, liked it. <laughs> if you turned around and said, you know, go and support Dave on Patreon, by the way, guys. Um, you know, if if you turned around and went, well, this is not any good, then I would have been upset. But <laughs> I can understand. Removed all funding. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I can understand criticism for this film. So, yeah, I'm not so thick skinned. Um, yeah. Like, I, yeah, I, I am thick skinned. Is that? Yeah. I don't know. You were I doing it backwards, but I knew what you meant. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, so let's talk about uh, the direction, of course, directed by and written by actually Steven Spielberg, uh, who recently last week you called a hack uh, compared to David Lean. So interesting that this is your one of your favorite movies of all time. But um, uh, one thing that I was really impressed with, and I think I've seen this in in other of his movies, especially when we're talking about E.T., I think he mixes he mixes styles very well. I think there's there's obviously a lot of sci-fi here. There's a little bit of horror and there's even a little bit of comedy in the film. And I think they all work and fit into this this kind of perfect tone of the film. It would be very easy with some of the imagery in this movie for this to seem overly silly or overly serious. And I feel like it, it balances that line very well. I agree. And, you know, while I did say that uh, E.T. is, I think, his best directed film – uh, Close Encounters certainly is a very, very solidly directed film. And it's, you know, while it is such a, a powerful film for me and, and has such a huge role in my life, I think that what works so well is that he, again, has taken elements from Jaws and learnt what he did there and been able to implement it here in certain ways. And, mm-hmm. you know, with with obviously he's a director who wears his inspirations and in his, uh, you know, what he enjoys on his sleeve with the the surplus of uh, war films and science fiction films that he's done. Um, But, you know, this is one of the very few films that he's written. Uh, I can't actually remember what else he's he's actually written. I think it was sort of uh, co-wrote AI in a way. Um, Too bad. Stanley Kubrick had. um, (laughs) Yeah, well, we'll just wait until you do an episode on that. You'll be waiting a long time, buddy. (laughs) Yeah. but I think that's the thing is that he manages to actually 
you know, inject a lot of him into this story. And that is, that is not easy as a director and as a writer. So it's, it's the confidence that he, he does in being able to showcase, you know, such a world, worldly story because it covers all aspects of the world. You know, you've got India, you've got America and you've got all these, these fantastic shots in the desert and stuff like that, which really, really inform the story. But still at the core you have Roy and his family's story, which drives the whole plot and you never lose scope of that. And I think one of the things which I keep on coming back to this film is that there are so many different threads with it and you can watch this film and appreciate every single different thread and watch it from that particular point of view. So you can watch it from Roy's point of view. You can watch it from Lacombe's point of view. Right. You know, you can watch it from Gillian's point of view. You have all these different aspects and it works so well because it is such a, a, a you know, as I said with, uh, with Bridge on the River Kwai, it is a grand story telling small things, but it's a small story telling grand things. And that's hmm. difficult to do. And I think that he excels in, in all areas there. So, yeah. yeah. I think earlier when I was talking about that mix of tone, the scene that comes to mind uh, right away for me, in the, near the beginning of the film, there's a shot of a child like running away from the house. Right. And ends up, of course, like, you know, leading us to the kind of first alien encounter. But it's this interesting mix because it's it's kind of a scary scene, like the way it's shot. It's shot in the dark, this kid running away from home. But this kid is also like giggling the whole time, mm. like he's really enjoying himself. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of dichotomy in that moment of like, you're not sure what to feel. At that moment, like this kid's really happy and you're like along with this kid, but he's also running away from this house in the dark, like through this through this area that's clearly not safe. And I think that that kind of that holds for the rest of the movie is that you have this kind of mix of scenes, even within single scenes, these different ways you can read it and different ways you can look at it. I agree. And, you know, the thing is, is that with alien abduction films, if you look at the the sort of the path of them from, I guess, from Close Encounters through to films like Communion and Fire in the Sky, you know, you have you have a great understanding that this is a film that admires the possibility of of life outside of Earth and admires the the vast aspects of uh, the universe. And I, I think what works so well about that scene in particular is that, and, you know, there are a few other scenes as well, is that, you know, you, it is very, uh, it could be terrifying, but it's actually kind of hopeful and it's kind of um, aspirational and, and ho- yeah, it, it's hopeful in the fact that, hey, there's something else out there and it's not to be afraid of. And I think that that's really, it's really something that, Unfortunately, um, the the fear of the unknown and the fear of uh, space and the fear of terror kind of swamped the the alien invasion or abduction stories because right you know you you lose a lot of that that hope and that um, that wonder that a film like this has and it's sad because it's it is something that you know for for people watching this film or or any other film like this you know you it can inspire you to go and you know, want to, you know, seek out science or seek out space and learn more about that. So it's the power of film in that regard that, you know, it can drive somebody to want to be like Lacombe and and want to seek the unknown and stuff like that. It so, could yeah, also it's... drive you to not care about your family, but we'll talk about that more, I think, when we get to writing. <laughs> 
Um, so, um, I think as far as direction, yeah, that's nothing. <laughs> yeah, who cares? Poor Terry Gar. Um, I think there's, uh, there's two moments of direction in this film, two particular sequences that really hammered home, home how talented, uh, Spielberg was, I mean, is, but especially in 1977, like this is near the beginning of his career. The fact that he is able to build tension while we look at a radar screen is pretty incredible to me. Like, and that's even watching it in 2016, where I've seen every special effect and I've seen what we can do. And I was still like, oh my God, oh, what's going to, this, this is a real, a real important moment. And then the scene inside the truck, um, of kind of our first encounter. I think it's just the only way, what I wrote down, the only way I can think of it, like, this is pure cinema. Like, this is what science fiction cinema can be. And the fact that he keeps it confined to the cab of the truck, I think it's really smart. I think, uh, I mean, some of it probably had to do with, like, uh, I don't know how we're going to film this exactly. Like, if we show what's happening, there's even, and there's a lot of shots, like, we get shots of the aliens and of the, of the, of the spacecraft, but they're all kind of bathed in light. So they're kind of fuzzy and kind of blurred out, which I think is another really smart decision. So we can't like pick apart <laughs> what's going on here with the special effects. But I think keeping it so confined, it makes us feel that both fear and wonder that Richard Dreyfus's character is going through. And I just, I, it's my, it's probably my favorite scene in the film. I, I it is a great scene. And, you know, one of the things which is really impressive about this film and and really any great film as well or any great director is able to do this is that each scene should be able to be its own mini story in itself you know obviously part of a greater story and this film is is indicative of that through and through because it shows that you know you have sequences like like that car scene like when when Barry gets abducted and you could watch just that sequence alone and, you know, that's three or four minutes out of the film and that tells its own little story with its mm-hmm. own little climax and everything. And then obviously it leads to the the, the stunning finale, which is just a, a great, great piece of cinema. It's, it's wow. Wow. Just great. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's stunning that he's able to actually, and I know I'm repeating my, my, glorious words and stuff like that but <laughs> he's able to you know he's he's able to do those uh the, that kind of small telling of stories like that radar scene as you're saying to tell this greater story and it works so well so yeah. very well i actually did look up a thesaurus before recording to <laughs> get some better films but uh better you know words and stuff like that but they've all gone out of my mind so i apologize people <laughs> <laughs> i also feel like the the kind of reveal of the mountain uh, I think really works as well. I think there's a lot of excellent buildup. Like we have, you know, him drawing the image, you know, of course the famous mashed potato scene. Uh, and then when you finally figure out like where that is and what that is, like, I think that that really does work and come. It's interesting that just a picture on a television screen of a news broadcast can be kind of awe inspiring, but you're like, Oh, that's what it is. And it's, and I can't really explain why it's so affecting, but it definitely is. Like, I think you expect it to be this grand mystery and it's like, no, we're just going here. And I think that that moment really works. That's a really emotional moment for me. I think that that particular reveal as well, and the understanding that Roy has in that scene of, all right, this is finally where he is going on his path. This is the understanding of what he's, what has been driving his mind for the past few days. And 
Right. Yeah, I, I get a little bit teary at that moment. You know, and, and all it is is just an image on the screen and all you're seeing is his realization. But, you know, obviously, and this goes into production design a bit, but you have that, the, the great shot of the, the massive uh, dirt mountain that he's created in his living room. And then you have the shot of Devil's Tower on the TV as well. And just his look of realization of, wow, okay, this is what it is. And he doesn't obviously know what it is when he gets there. Um, but he, yeah, it's just that, okay, this is what has been part of my life. And this is what has caused me to destroy my family. <laughs> Even though he doesn't really care about his family all too much, but we'll no. touch on that. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> he's not bothered by that at all. All right, um, so let's let's go into the acting. Of course, the one person I think we really obviously need to talk about is Richard Dreyfus. I think this, eh. <laughs> yeah, I mean he's kind of a main character. Um, I I don't know if this is his best performance, but it's pretty goddamn close. It's it's pretty impressive. I think. I think despite what I've joked about uh, as far as him not giving a shit about his family, I think he does a good job despite like at certain moments of this film, like going fucking nuts and going off the deep end, at least from a, you know, stereotypical perspective. I think you really feel his journey. And I think the the great thing about Dreyfus, especially in the seventies is he's so, he's so down to earth. He's such an everyman that, he really he really fits this role and i think you need that here i don't think you you want somebody who's like who appears to be you know harvard educated or who appears to be some action hero you need a regular guy who's struggling and i think mm. you really get that here so i think this is you know i as i think about it more i think it's probably like i really love his performance in jaws but i think this is probably his best most layered performance of his career yeah i i agree i mean Jaws is a it's a good film, um, but the oh you know it's, it's pretty good. Jesus, come on, Andrew, just some fucking respect. <laughs> I, that is a great movie. Jesus. I, I have issues with it, but this well, is you have issues with what happened after, not the movie. That's so that's it. Yeah, simmer so down the there, animal rights <laughs> activists. Just calm down. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the only thing that got damaged in this film was mashed potato, okay? So it's fine. Now that is a but, crime. That's Yeah, it is a crime. <laughs> it is a crime. But Richard Dreyfus is great here and you know, and that's the thing is that he wasn't the focus of Jaws. Uh, you know, I think right. Scheider and um the guy who played Quint did a you know, they were the focus there. He is great here, but for me, you know, and it is probably a career best performance. And, you know, as you're saying, he is that every man and he is that that guy that is just struggling to keep his family together. But one of the things until you know, he doesn't care about thing. keeping them together, like whatever, man. <laughs> well, yeah. But one of the things which I think is it's a throwaway moment, but he's sitting there and he's playing with his train set and, you know, and Terry Gars, uh, Ronnie comes up to him and says, you promised the kids that we'd go and see a movie. And he's like, yeah, yeah, okay, what movie do you want to go and see? And then picks up the newspaper and there's Pinocchio in there. And he's like, what do you mean you kids haven't seen Pinocchio? And I'm sure that it was just kind of like, oh, let's put a film in there. But thematically, it does actually work because obviously Pinocchio is about the story of, a, you know, this wooden boy who wants to grow up and be a, a, a real boy. And that kind of is the story of what Roy is going through in the sense that he is a man who doesn't know who he, who he is. He doesn't know where he's found himself. And through these aliens, he manages to find that, hey, being a father isn't what he's supposed to be. And, you know, going off and doing this 
uh, abduction essentially is what his life purpose was. And that's, I don't know, it's, I find that really interesting and Dreyfus sells it and you never feel that he is a terrible person. But on the same guide, you don't ever think that Terry Gar is victimized. Well, depending on which cut you watch and, Right. You know, I don't. I don't think the. I think it's a special edition. Don't watch that. It's. It's got some terribly added scenes in there, and it certainly makes her Ronnie seem a little bit more shrill. Watch the director's cut. It's much better. You get a greater understanding, and you know she is a lot more sympathetic as a character and sympathetic of Roy's actions to a certain point until he starts throwing uh, the the plants from outside into the the house. Right. You know, as you do. (laughs) Like you do. Yeah. Just start uprooting your garden. So what did you think of Terry Gar's performance? She's great in this. I I think she's really, really wonderful. And, you know, she is, uh, I think the, the thing is that when you watch films after, you know, decades after they're being released, unfortunately, one of the, and fortunately, one of the things that works and doesn't work for films that are old is that we put certain themes on them or under readings, I guess is the the word I'm looking for, readings off them onto the film that may not have been there in the first place. Mm. So one of the readings that you can look at is that obviously Roy is going through uh, mental illness of some kind and her response to that is, you know, all right, I can help you to a certain point. You don't know what's going on with you, but then when you start becoming violent and aggressive, I'm out of here. And that's what she does. And, you know, that's a certain reading that you can put on there. It's not my reading. It's, you know, some of the readings that are out there in the world, but that's a way that you can see it. And I think that it's a believable and understandable relationship here. And of course, uh, Spielberg came from a a broken family, I guess is the way of putting it. And he is a man who has been through many, many marriages too so he certainly understands what it's like to be a separated man and and to break up a family i guess is unfortunately the case so and that's a running theme throughout his films quite a lot obviously et has it um you know many many other of his films deal with breakups and stuff like that but i think that this is probably the most human and relatable breakup of a of a family and it's the most devastating as well um and I think it's really interesting. I mean, my personal favorite performance here is Melinda Dillon. I think that she is just great in this film. And I actually wanted more of her in this movie. I actually wish uh, there were more scenes yeah. with her. I, I agree. And, you know, part of me does kind of think that, that w- her story here was really kind of uh, implanted into E.T. in that regard of, all right, we'll do the single mum with the kid kind of thing right. in that film. So beefed it up a little bit more. But I, I do wish that there was more of her because when I rewatch this film, and I've rewatched it a lot, um, <laughs> I watch it mostly for her performance because I think that her her scenes with Barry are just oh, really, really great and really powerful because you get the understanding, again, a lot like Roy. She doesn't know what's going on. She doesn't know what's driving her son to act this way. She doesn't know... Uh, you know, what he's doing. And then when these lights appear and and these aliens appear and, and these UFOs appear and then her, her son gets abducted, it's devastating to see the lengths that she goes to to try and get her son back. And, you know, one of the most powerful scenes in this film is when the people are like, hey, you know, maybe you got kidnapped and stuff like that. And she knows exactly what happened to him and nobody right. believes her and nobody listens to her. And 
I think that Melinda Dillon really sells that that trying to get people to understand, hey, I know it sounds crazy, but UFOs took my kid away. So listen to me, believe me, because that's what happened. I know I don't know how you're going to get him back, but that's what happened. So yeah, it's uh, that's why I watch this film. Melinda Dillon is ah great. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's there's any weak performances here, uh, but I I do think that it is it's one of those movies that it's it's hard to talk about the acting performances because it's such in a lot of ways it's interesting. It's a movie about connection. It's a movie about meaning and the search for it. But it's also a very solitary film. Like mm. these people are connected, but not deeply. Like, yeah. you know, even even the family in the beginning, like, you know, you can tell they care about one another. There's certainly something there and there's history there. But you don't get this kind of ultra loving relationship between the kids and between the family. So it's this very and it doesn't actually surprise me that Spielberg wrote this. I mean, I see him as kind of an an isolated figure in a lot of ways. Like he does keep his distance. And I think the characters in this movie keep their distance, too. And I think that may be why they would be more willing to take these leaps and, and, you know, at the end of the film, kind of leave everything behind, because if they had mm. deeper connections, they wouldn't feel the need to do that. Yeah, I think that he's one of the few directors who, and I don't know whether Close Encounters was a passion project or not, but, you know, he's one of the few directors in my mind that he has done a passion project like Close Encounters and managed to continue on making great films, because Often you find directors, I'm thinking of Peter Jackson, for example, after he did King Kong, everything went to shit. And <laughs> I do have the kind of feeling that, you know, don't do your passion project because you'll always be trying to obtain the, the, the steps to get to that passion project. And to be able to create a film like this so early in your career is, wow, you know, and obviously he is a great director. He is one of the best directors ever alive. And He's a hack, Andrew. He's a hack. Come on. Yeah, just get, yeah. Put in that clip from me last stick week. With <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so so let's talk about the writing of this film. So of course we have to talk about the ending. Uh, and it's interesting. I actually watched. Uh, there was a there was an episode of Inside the Actors Studio with Steven Spielberg on it, and he says that he would definitely not have the same ending now if he were to make it now because he's been married and had kids. Um, and at the time of, at time of this, he wasn't married. So it's a, it's an interesting look at like how an artist changed, how an artist changes and how life changes you. But even as, I remember even watching this as a kid and as a teenager that I was like, wow, that's kind of fucked up. Like, it's just like, like, yeah, his, they had this big falling out and she clearly wanted nothing to do with him in this moment, practically killed him with her car. But like, you're gonna, you have kids, you have two kids, you have a wife. Uh, who you may or may not be able to get back with, and you're just going to leave the fucking planet? Like, it is a drastic ending to this film. And it and it leaves me torn every time I watch it. Like, I feel like I get why he's making that choice, but I also feel like you're a human being in the world with responsibilities. What the fuck is wrong with you? Yes, I agree. Uh, To a point, I think that, you know, one of the things as I've learned through repeated viewings of this film is that, you know, some people just aren't meant to be parents and some people aren't meant to be a dad or, you know, a mum or whatever. And if he is compelled to go and do what he does, I think it is better for, you know, Ronnie and the kids that he's not there because 
even if he remained, if he powered through this compulsion to be abducted, uh, even though he doesn't know that he wants to be abducted until, you know, the great music at the end, you know, even if he powered through that and stayed on earth, he would never be the dad that those kids needed. He would never be the husband that she needed. So, you know, and I'm not saying, hey, everybody go and leave your kids and wife, you know, if that's, if you don't have it in you. But I think that is what you're I saying. Think- <laughs> Addition by subtraction, just get out now. <laughs> well, I think, I think the thing is, is that, you know, after World War II, there was a lot of, uh, you know, in Australia, we had the baby boom essentially to kind of build up stocks. Hey, we killed a lot of people in World War II. We've got to, you know, regroup everybody and all that kind of stuff. So there was the, the social pressure to have kids and the social pressure to stick in a marriage. And I'm, I'm not saying that divorce is accepted or anything like that or abandoning your, your kids are, is accepted. But I think nowadays we have a better understanding of what a damaged relationship can do to kids. So for me as an adult now, I think that Roy made the right decision. And I think that, yes, Ronnie's going to have a very difficult time for a period of, for you know, five, 10 years. But I think that she will find somebody who will be a better dad. That's my optimistic point yeah, of view. Good, good luck getting uh, getting financial support <laughs> from the guy off off on a fucking UFO. So she's... I, Jesus Christ, Andrew. <laughs> The fact that you just defend that decision, like without, like, yeah, I think you made the right choice. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but in terms of in terms of the screenplay, the one thing I find myself wondering <laughs> is like, I wonder if this movie, like, let's strike this movie, say it never happened, and somebody gets this script in 2016. Like, I make, I find myself wondering what would this movie be like because it is the definition of a slow burn. This is not a quick moving film. Like this is very much a late 70s movie and I love it. I love how it builds. But uh, do you think audiences now if they'd never seen this movie can handle the pacing, the plotting of this movie? If it was made now or yeah. if they watch it now for the first time. If it was made now, uh I think, you know, regardless of who directs it, it would certainly have more action. You would see aliens sooner or you'd see spaceships a lot sooner even though you actually do see the the ufos quite you know quite early in the piece it actually surprised me how early you see them that's and i must say it's got one of my favorite lines in this film as well and this because we're talking about sort of talking about the script in this regard i i love the you know i can't remember who says it but essentially he's they're describing what the the ufo looks like and the line is, you know, it looks like an ice cream mm-hmm. cone and kid's response is, what flavor? Yeah. You know, I love that line. Uh, but, you know, I think that they would certainly beef up those the the UFOs. They would beef that up. They would cut out all the Lacombe stuff. They would just focus on one particular family. And you wouldn't have him abandoning his wife and kids at the end. Uh, you would have the ending to War of the World. So there you go. Is That's it, my. Is that a good thing? It. Is that do we no, really well, need I more mean, War of the Worlds? Yeah, you're the one who's but, like, yeah, leave your family. You must, you would hate that ending. <laughs> but that's the thing. Is that yeah? Okay, you're talking about uh, how Spielberg had mentioned on on Inside the Actor Studio how he would change the ending now, and I think the ending would be what his ending to War of the Worlds is, where everybody's happy and they're all getting along and nobody's died. And I'm not saying you know the UFOs in this film aren't out to kill people, but it just goes to show how people grow as they, you know, throughout their life. And 
obviously my opinion of it as a kid versus my opinion of this film as an adult is is a lot different. I'm certain when I watched this at five or six years old that I wasn't saying, good on you, Roy, you did it. Stupid kids. You left them. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I do remember feeling that it was a – you know, it was certainly a devastating thing. And I think the thing is that he softens that blow by having Barry return at that point. Mm -hmm. And he softens it by having the, you know, Lacombe be so optimistic and so um, in awe of what he's seeing and what he's experiencing because he is the person that's essentially communicating with the UFOs. And that is, that's the thing is that it's, yeah, okay, we're focusing on Roy's story here in, in, discussing about what he does with his family and kids. But I think the thing is, is that again, it's such a multifaceted story that you, even if you don't look at that part of it, there are other elements which soften that, that particular harsh aspect of him uh, abandoning the planet and, you know, people being in awe of, of what they're seeing, being in awe that, Hey, we're not alone. So yeah, it's, and, you know, Francois Truffaut does a really great job here as well. And it's great that, you know, Spielberg managed to get a French director to come and act in his uh, crazy little sci-fi film. Um, you know, he does a really good job as well. And I think that that adds the the universality of the film, the, the multicultural aspect of the film. I think actually um, that's the most impressive part of the screenplay is I remember like as I was watching this, like seeing the beginning where you're like, oh, God, I, and I was watching the beginning scenes going, I don't remember shit about this movie because like <laughs> the things you remember are the spaceships and the music and the, you know, the mashed potatoes and all the scenes with Richard Dreyfuss. And I forgot how big this story really is and how much space it covers. But I think the script does a really good job of having all these things somehow interconnect uh, by the end of the film. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's difficult, but it works. It works so well. And, you know, he's, I can't remember how long he'd been directing, but to be able to pull all of that off. Wow. Great job. Yeah, I mean, not long, right? Like, this has to be pretty early in his career. It's 1977. I think it's right after Jaws. So he's got maybe two or three films under his belt at this point. Yeah. And this is a, I mean, say what you will about kind of the emotionality of the film or whether it connects with you. But just from a filmmaking perspective, like, this is really impressive work. Like, this is this is well put together. It's well designed. It's well scripted. I mean, it's it's really good. But that, that goes, you know, as you're saying, you you would probably put on something like Jurassic Park, and that's probably my next up Spielberg film. I think that was a, a stunning film. It's about time you had but, a good opinion. That's that's good. Yeah, <laughs> just the one. Just the one. That's yeah. enough for this episode. Um, uh, but I think that, you know, with a director who has such a vast array of films, it's very easy to, you know, select a handful of films to be able to say, I will put these on and rewatch them. And for me, Close Encounters is top of the pipe, top of the heap. I'm sure there are people who love Raiders more. And there's that one crazy person who always puts on Munich on a Friday night to cheer them up. Um, so, you know, there's, <laughs> there's that, whatever, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Yeah. It's nice to have a director who's like that varied. I think, I think one of the, but one of the things I think that ties a lot of Spielberg movies together is that sense of awe, that sense of wonder. And you definitely do get that here, which I think leads us in perfectly to production value. Um, so what did you think of the production value specifically of the aliens and the spacecraft? Um, 
I mean, the aliens, like, if you know what they are, which is just, like, um, little kids and stuff like that. And I think the if you have a look on the Blu-ray, um, one of the – there's test footage. I think they wanted to put, like, chimpanzees on roller skates or something like that, but it looked just too bizarre. <laughs> um, and, oh, you know, Spielberg, it, you fucking would. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and the thing is, is that I think that, you know, again, going back to him learning stuff from Jaws, that, that backlight of, against those aliens it's really kind smart. of, <laughs> yeah, it makes it because the, you know, 1977, Hey, hats off. Good job. You try and make uh, realistic looking aliens, but they're just going to look hokey. And right. especially on the budget that they have, you know, they didn't, they didn't put that much money into, you know, like Andy circus level stuff whatever right so i think it looks good but i think what works even more is the ufos because you see them a lot more and the graphics of them you know they've they've aged wonderfully as well they don't look hokey or anything like that and you know they have a bit of personality too especially in that last uh operatic sequence where essentially you know they're dancing on the the skies and stuff like that and there's you know each of the ships does have that little bit of personality in a way and and i enjoy that but you yeah you you really enjoy that that special effects aspect but that's not why i love the film i think you know john williams score is obviously what drives it the most for me i sure. think that he that says a lot more about the film than than anything else and and I probably should have mentioned the writing because that is a way that they communicate but for me, that's the the most impressive production design element. What do you think of the aliens and the UFOs? Well, I mean, I think you mentioned uh, the the backlighting and kind of, I guess, the front lighting of the ships, which I mentioned earlier. I think is really smart because I think uh, I think if you take it, doesn't matter how much money you spend. Like if you made a movie now in 2016, if people are watching this movie in 2050, they're going to be like, "Well, that looks fake as fuck." Like that's that looks terrible. It just is because we always get better, right? Like that yeah. is the goal of technology, the goal the goal of filmmaking in a lot of ways is to improve upon what we've done, right? So you're always going to have this moment of like, oh, you can tell that's 30 or 40 years old, but by the the kind of blurriness of of those moments, I think it it hides a lot of a lot of faults of special effects and just lets you kind of dive into that that wonder and you can kind of imagine what it actually looks like. I think it, especially the scene with the aliens at the end, I think triggers your imagination in such a way that you can kind of fill in, you know, fill in the pieces here. You can fill in the blanks. And I think that's really smart. Um, the other thing from production value I really liked is the choice to have this kind of sunburn. Uh, if people have mm. come in contact, like, you know, uh, Dreyfus has kind of the half and half look and, you know, our other main character has kind of the full face, uh, redness. And I thought that was a really interesting choice and also gives us this sense of like, we don't know what we're dealing with. Like, mm. we don't know if they're friendly. We don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing. Like they have created some kind of minor harm. And we like, is this purposeful? Is this just accidental? And we don't really know. And I think that that kind of fuels the mystery of the film where if you know from the beginning that these creatures are violent or you know that they're peace loving, I think that takes a little bit away. And I like that we have that little bit of mystery. So I think it's the production value here, especially if you look at it in the light of like, this is, this is 1977. This is a movie older than me. And God knows I'm ancient. Uh, it's pretty impressive. Like it's, it's really good here. And I think, I think Spielberg was, 
really smart at kind of knowing his limitations. And I think most directors, when it comes to special effects, don't understand their limitations. I think, you know, if we talk about that scene in the truck, he very easily could have crafted a scene where you see the, the ship from above and you see the truck, you know, shaking from kind of a third person perspective. But instead we have this almost first person view of being like a passenger in this truck. So he was really smart about knowing like either I can't afford to do this or, and like you said, lessons learned from Jaws, or this is going to look bad later, and I want this film to be able to be watched in five or ten years, not just this year. And I think you can see that kind of planning and forethought in the film. Well, it pays to have, uh, you know, good friends like George Lucas. Um, that does help. To, you know, that's, at least that's then. pretty help. <laughs> yeah, at least then. <laughs> and, you know, obviously, um, you know, the, there's that, if you look hard, you can see R2-D2 on one of the ships and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah, it's a nice nod in the production design and all that. But another element which I really enjoy is the, um, depending on which version you watch, but the planes in the desert and the ship in the desert as well looks just brilliant. Um, but yeah. for me, probably the, the standout moment besides the music, um, well, I mean, is the the scene in India is also great as well, which is a music scene. But... Barry's abduction in particular, and I keep on I'm harping on that particular scene, but it is it is probably my favourite scene in the film in the regards that just the the talent that Spielberg has with the directing in that scene and what he put in to, you know, delivering, to getting a, a great reaction out of Kerry Guffey in that moment, you know, the right. look of, uh, you know, concern and then the look of awe and then he smiles as well in that moment it's just brilliant and then you have all the the different sort of uh, elements in the house kind of um you know going off the the record player goes off the stove mm. suddenly turns hot everything's flipping around and everything like that and that just works so well but even through you know, even through um, Gillian's terror in those those scenes, you still have a feeling of awe and a feeling of excitement and a feeling of, all right, I know that you're frightened here, but just send the kid outside because I'm really curious to see what's going on out there. And I, I just think that. Oh, just, Andrew, just wow. send the kid to his death. Go ahead. Like I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't worry about like you know leaving my family. Put the kid in danger. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, But since you brought up favorite scenes, I think we'll just like kind of move to that now. I think we talked about some of them for me, like that truck sequence, I think is, I mentioned it being my favorite scene in the film and pure cinema. I also really like uh, the kind of mashed potato scene and the scene where he really snaps and starts, you know, digging up his, uh, his, his front yard and throwing it in the house. I think it's, it's a really interesting scene to have in there because I think up until that moment, we are fully on his on his page. We're fully on his side. Like we've seen what he's seen. So we're like, yeah, I get it. I get why you did what you did. And that's the scene where you're like, you're you're forced to be placed in the position of his family, like watching this and like mm. how how damaged he really is in this moment. And you know, him involving his kids in this madness and and you see Terry Gar's reaction in that scene where she thinks she thinks things are gonna be fine. She goes in to apologize for the night before and then sees kind of how far gone he really is. And it's kind of heartbreaking. Like the look on yeah. her face where she realizes like, I can't help you. Like yeah. I have and to I have to protect my kids. We have to go. 
Yeah, and the look of him in the shower when he he's in the shower and he's like, I don't know what is happening to me. It depends right. on which version you watch. Again, I think is really, it's just heartbreaking to see. And I think one of the things that works so well, especially during this period, is that, you know, for in the seventies there really wasn't. I mean, there was a lot of uh, UFO hysteria, I guess is the way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but there probably wasn't as much uh, talk of you know, abduction stories and abduction survivors, I guess is the, the term. Um, Whatever. As there was Crazy in the, the 80s and the 90s. <laughs> Wackos. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, but it's like part of me, you know, there is a respect of people who have been abducted or who have been, who have, who tell stories of having encounters with aliens or having encounters with UFOs and things like that. And, for a film from the seventies to be able to do that, that it's really powerful that, you know, Spielberg presents great respect for, for Roy in those scenes and great respect as well for Gillian too. And uh, the other people that they encounter on their way to uh, devil's tower. Um, for me, as I was saying, I think Barry's abduction is, is probably my favorite scene, but like, if you ask me tomorrow what my favorite scene is, it'll be the climax or it'll mm. be the, the shot in India. I, I really, it's hard to it's hard to pick, but I mean the climax. Uh, wow, I think it's the climax a... is really impressive because on paper that shouldn't work. Like yeah. if you tell someone, so here's what happens, they're gonna be like, "Well, that sounds fucking boring. That sounds cheap, mm. and it sounds like they didn't want to have you know an action sequence." But it it does really work, you know, and it's a long scene. It is not quick. It goes on for a good long time, but I think it does really work even now. But that's the thing is he, he he gives you all of these small scenes and provides you with the context of that final moment. And, you know, it can't be something that is over and done with in five minutes. It right. needs to be a 40-minute segment of this film. It needs to be a, a massive climax. And that's the thing is that modern-day storytellers, and we talked about this on Bridge on the, on the River Choir as well, in the regards to modern storytellers don't take the time to tell their stories incrementally and make the climax matter. Right. You know, it's all about getting that first half hour and making you excited in the first half hour and putting all your effects in that, that first moment and not about having a sustained story that makes you excited at the end. And it's a rarity nowadays. And, and, you know, I think that again, what you're saying about if they made this film now, uh, they would certainly have, probably put that at a certain at a different point in the film they probably would have put it earlier on right and then they would have you know had him abducted and then had him returned uh you know to his front door or something like that because they're, they're good they're good uber drivers um and you know they <laughs> and get Ronnie, a little bit of a suntan but other than that exactly and then ronnie accepts him with open arms that's what a modern day filmmaker would probably do i think I'm usually an advocate for remaking anything. I say, go for it, remake whatever you want, but don't remake this film. It's impossible to remake. You would never See, be now, able to hit the Now I want them to. Yeah. <laughs> Just to watch you lose your fucking mind. I would like to see that now. It would probably be my reaction if someone tried to remake like Lawrence of Arabia. Like I would just be like, yeah. boycott. No, this should never be made. <laughs> We'll see Andrew on the news trying to, like, ruin the production. Like, stop it setting fire to sets. That's that's what I envision if they ever <laughs> try to remake this film. Yeah, they'll be able to make it. See, they can make a documentary about me ruining my, my 
marriage to burn debt uh, because my I'm com- you know there is this r- rare random compulsion to go and tear down a remake of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. <laughs> Something is powering me to do this. Something that I don't know. It's called Hollywood. That's what it is. Yeah, there it is. All right. Uh, so let's talk about the theme. Uh, so of course we're talking about the search for meaning, and I think of course you know the the character that immediately comes to mind is our main character of Roy. I think he is searching for something and i think it's it's so well developed because you see it like even in that first scene with this family the scene you're talking about where they're you know uh where they're trying to pick a movie to watch right and the only way he really knows how to interact with his kids is to kind of be childlike like you don't see him really as a father figure even in the beginning of this film and he's clearly lost like he doesn't you know his work isn't important to him his marriage maybe a little bit, but his kids definitely not. Like it seems almost like this is obligatory. Like I have yep. to do this and it's not something that means anything to him. So I certainly get where he's coming from in this movie, in this search. And he is the perfect person to to kind of see what he has seen in this movie. Because if he had those connections, if he had meaning in his life, it, he probably would have gone a very different route. So you're saying you understand why he abandoned his family then? I understand why he's a terrible person, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, You know, I I do agree. You know, I think that, again, one of the the most amusing moments is uh, his interaction with his kids and uh, the way his solution to a math problem, which is, you know, hey, look, I've put this amount of a train on a train track. Hey, there's – and I I love Richard Dreyfuss's delivery of that particular line – there are, you know, thousands of lives at stake here. Quick, make a decision, you know, that kind of thing. And it just shows, I guess, in a regard, you know, some people um, having kids makes, you know, is the meaning of your life in that in that regard. And right. you know, if you if you have a kid, then suddenly you have a purpose in your life. And and obviously that is not the case for Roy. And you know, it's unknowingly to him he has delivered his purpose or his meaning in in the regard to you know finding out what's in in outer space and and going and exploring and being an explorer and and yeah he's a he's a terrible person for for abandoning his family that's for sure but when something is pushed on him and it's the only way that he can find meaning then you can understand it you can sympathize it with it you can sympathize with it for a small amount i guess yeah, no, I, I, I mean, halfway. <laughs> as much as I'd like to disagree with you, I, I do agree with you there that I think you do, you do sympathize um, with his actions, even if like outside of the film, they're kind of repugnant, like the, the actions he takes at the end of the film, you still, because you're on this journey with him, I think you do understand that, that desire for something more, that desire for something bigger. And I think we can all relate to that. I think we all, in a lot of ways, unless we are very privileged and very gifted, our lives in general are not world changing. They're, they're small and they're, and they're intimate and, and I think most of the time those moments are worth it. But if you're in a situation like Roy, where to you it's not, I mean, I wouldn't say like he doesn't care about his kids or care about his wife, but there's no, there's nothing deep there. There's nothing, there's nothing true kind of connecting them. And he desires that he just doesn't know how to access it. And this, the, the context of the film gives him a way to kind of fight for something more. So you understand why he makes the choice he does, even if you don't necessarily agree with it. I, yeah, exactly. You've, you've said it perfectly. There's, 
yeah, it's yeah, there's nothing more to really be said. But I guess on the 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 flip side as well, you have somebody like Lacombe who, you know, again portrayed by Francois Truffaut, I think he gives a, a great performance here. But one of the lines that he says to Roy near the end is about how he's been searching for this all his life as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he the difference between him and Roy is that, you know, he's and ed, not saying that Roy's not educated, but he is a educated man. This is the field that he works in. Uh, this is the area that he has, you know, been able to research and put his dedicate his life to. So he's lucky in the sense that compared to Roy, he managed to find that calling earlier in life, and he managed to find the understanding and the meaning of his life a lot sooner, and put all of his energy into it. And you know, he sells that that really well. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so the last thing to talk about is the movie we're pairing this with, which seemed like just, you know, I, there was almost no other choice but to pair uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind with Arrival. Like it's about, you know, alien connection. It's about communication. It's about a different means of communication where we have kind of the music here at the end of of this film. I like that one of the the main characters in this film is a linguist. And I love the director. I think I think he's incredible. So I'm really excited to watch Arrival. And I, I'm glad to see Amy Adams uh, with like a really meaty role here. Um, what, what about you? What are your expectations for Arrival? Uh, it's through the roof. You know, it's Denis Villeneuve. 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 Yes. Yeah. Uh, Denny does Denny. I don't Dennis. Know. He, Dennis, <laughs> Dennis. Hey, Dennis. Um, he... <laughs> He's really good. I, I, you know, Sicario is a great film. Uh, Enemy is brilliant. Um, Prisoners is fantastic. And I love the, his kind of move to having, you know, Emily Blunt, obviously, and Sicario is great. And his casting of Amy Adams here looks fantastic as well. And from what I understand, of course, she is certainly more the, the focal point. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed in that Jeremy Renner was in it, but I can tolerate <laughs> that. <laughs> I like the guy. I do, but I just wonder if he, you know, after a series of action films and stuff like that, his his acting bones of maybe he's a two time Oscar nominee, you know, and he's great yeah. in the town. But fantastic, yeah, yeah. I do, uh, I do fear that he's maybe been away from it a little bit too long. Yeah, I mean, we'll uh, see to come back to this. We will, yeah, and I'm really excited for it because it looks it looks brilliant, and it's one of the few films like. Uh, you know, I've watched the trailer for this and I think it looks great, but it's one of the few films that I've really kind of tried to steer clear as much as possible of right. of what people have said about it and what people have, you know, opinions and, and things like that. So, um, you know, it, fortunately it hits, uh, well, it hit, hit yesterday when this episode goes up. So I will have hopefully seen it by then. But yeah, I, I really am trying to avoid reviews and stuff because it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm kind of in the same boat. Um, it's, it's one of my one of the movies I'm looking most forward to, and it was you know when I first heard about it, I was like, oh, that sounds good. I mean, Villeneuve and you know science fiction, sure, that sounds pretty good. But like as it's gotten closer, I've gotten more and more excited. Like it's almost to like La La Land and Loving and Moonlight level of kind of excitement and readiness to see it. But it'll be interesting because I think this is the one of those movies that I mentioned that will actually get a really big wide release. Uh, kind of nationwide. So it'll be interesting to see how people respond to it. I think 
I think we need more big idea science fiction, and I think this kind of falls into that category, but it's always hit or miss how that works with the general public. So we'll see if this kind of catapults uh, Villeneuve uh, more into the limelight and, you know, the next he'll be doing Blade Runner, I guess. So we have that to look forward to. Or, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or do we? All right. um, So one more time before you go, why don't you tell people how to find you online? Uh, So you can find me online by going to abfilmreview.com where uh, previous episodes of AB Film Review and The Last New Wave can be found. Uh, You can also find me on Twitter or Facebook, AB Film Review on both of those sites and The Last New Wave as well on both Twitter and Facebook. Uh, So yeah, follow me there and I would appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, everybody, thanks for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study. Uh, if you want to connect with the show, there's lots of ways you can do that. The best way probably is to go on Twitter, which is at PC Case Study, and contact me there. You can also listen to lots of other great movie podcasts at followingfilms.com, so be sure to visit us there. And if you want to go the extra mile, go to patreon.com slash study, and there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis and get some really cool rewards while you're at it. So the next time you hear me, we'll be doing our review of Arrival. So until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another... Oh, God, I can't talk. Hold on. <laughs> See, I can't even... I, this movie's so bad, I can't talk. <laughs> Uh, oh, it's uh, that Edge of Seventeen movie um, because that's the same. It's a fucking. What am teenage. I doing here? Oh my god! <laughs> I gotta go. Fuck this guy. <laughs> no. What's up, Mike? <coughs> we were just talking about what uh, what I paired True Grit with, and I honestly, for a good ten seconds, there couldn't remember. <laughs> and I was like, Oh yeah, oh, the movie, Mike. Yeah, I know you do because you're angry. <laughs> well, you look like a fucking pervert. <laughs> look like what teen what teen high school comedy are we covering this week dave <laughs> <laughs>